What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks, Gary. Well, take care, man. Gotta get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. The dude abides. He certainly does. Jeff Bridges there in the role that will forever define him, the big Lebowski's The Dude. This week on the show, we consider the seven-time Academy Award nominees half-century in the movies with our top five Jeff Bridges scenes. We'll also kick off our 8 from 84 series with John Carpenter's Starman, featuring Bridges in his Oscar-nominated turn as an alien on a perilous scouting trip to Earth. All that and more. I am sorry I did awaken you. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Jeff Bridges, a seven-time Oscar nominee, first nominated back in 1971 for The Last Picture Show, most recently in 2017 for Hell or High Water. He, of course, won back in 2010 for Crazy Heart and His Dude, one of the most beloved movie characters of the past couple of decades. And yet, after preparing for this top five, Josh, is it possible that we realize now we've underappreciated Jeff Bridges? I think he's appropriately appreciated. You think so? I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's got the popularity with the dude. He's got all those Oscar noms, one win under his belt. And yeah, I think that's a good summary of his place in movie history. All right. We will assess his place in movie history and some of those key performances later in the show as we share our top five Jeff Bridges scenes. And you may be wondering, why are we talking about Jeff Bridges, though the Oscars are this weekend? That's not our tie in. We're thinking that any time is a good time to talk about Bridges. And he stars in the first title in our eight from 84 series, John Carpenter's Starman. In 1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space to the outermost regions of the universe. It carried an invitation in all languages for alien life forms to visit our planet. Someone, somewhere, listened and accepted our invitation. Get ready. Someone is coming. Someone like no one she has ever known before. Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of me. He has powers we cannot imagine, and the face and touch of the man she loved. I said greetings. What's the matter with you? The conventional wisdom on the making of Starman, released the same weekend, December 14th, 1984, as the movie we're closing our retrospective with, Dune, is that John Carpenter was in need of a hit. His adaptation of Stephen King's Christine the year before did well enough, and he had been on a solid run ever since his breakout in 1976. Assault on Precinct 13 was followed by Halloween, The Fog, and Escape from New York, with a couple of successful made-for-TV movies in the middle. But his first big studio film, 1982's The Thing, ironically now almost universally considered his finest work, was a critical and financial flop. This time, Carpenter would exchange his penchant for horror and gore for romance, though it occurred to me early on in Starman that while you can take the director out of Haddonfield, you can't completely take Haddonfield out of the director. When an alien being is shot down by the American military and crashes near a bay in Wisconsin, it approaches the isolated home of Karen Allen's Jenny Hayden. It's dark. She's alone. She's in her underwear. 
And Carpenter's first person or alien POV is eerily reminiscent of Michael Myers stalking his first victim and later other unsuspecting teenage girls. We could pursue this auteurist line of thought, the ways the movie perhaps truly is John Carpenter's Starman versus a compromised commercial effort that ultimately didn't pay off. And seriously, Lassiter, a Tom Selleck movie I've never even heard of, made more money in 84 than Starman. Lassiter? Yeah. Except I'm not sure either of us has enough Carpenter cred. I've got some blind spots. And while it isn't accurate to say you're completely down on his work, you are positive on both Halloween and Precinct 13. Your blind spots include Carpenter fan faves, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, and They Live. And did I mention? Big Trouble in Little China. I lived on that okay. in the 80s. Well, see, this is what happens when you check Loved your archive it. and you haven't reviewed it. So I, I haven't gotten around to revisiting it. I should have just asked you ahead of time. <laughs> I apologize. So fan faves, Escape from New York, and They Live. Accurate? Yeah, haven't okay. seen those. And you like Big Trouble in Little China. So that's three Carpenter movies you like. But did I mention you don't like The Fog or, more heretically, The Thing? So I'm going to try another approach. The fun of our 9 from 99 series was revisiting films that we might have seen only once back in 99. Naive as we surely were, we were adults and cinephiles. The movies in our 84 lineup may not be as formidable as titles such as Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, The Matrix, and Being John Malkovich, but they were, in their own way, more formative. I watched Starman, probably not in the theater, but on HBO in 85, and I watched it over and over and over. Why? Like a lot of grade school boys, I was generally fascinated by space and tanks and planes, and we get some of that in Starman, but aside from some cool tricks with those little balls the Starman carries, the action thrills are few and far between. I certainly didn't have the cinema knowledge to see the appeal, as Carpenter himself did, of it happened one night with a sci-fi premise, and nine-year-old me simply wasn't devouring a lot of love stories anyway. I would have known Karen Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, but Jeff Bridges, who plays the Starman in the clone form of Jenny's dead husband, Scott, wouldn't have been much of a draw. In 84, my only exposure to Bridges was probably as the uptight Rupert opposite Sally Field and James Kahn in the 1982 Robert Mulligan romantic comedy Kiss Me Goodbye, also on HBO on a loop. I'll try to unpack why I liked that movie so much as a kid on another show. What was it? What hooked me? I'll attempt an answer, but I'm eager to hear your perspective, Josh, as someone who watched Starman with alien eyes. That is, the eyes of someone seeing it for the first time, although I do often wonder if you are in fact an alien, considering you curiously miss so many 80s movies the rest of us kids had on repeat. Come to think of it, this would explain why you don't like the thing. You don't want your secret revealed. What, if anything, about Starman hooked you as a mature, sensible adult? Oh, you're launching this with some gross mischaracterization. I, I think the distinction here is I didn't have HBO <laughs> as a kid. That's the answer. A lot of kids didn't so have you're HBO. Not an alien, Adam. Is what you're saying? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think you're protesting too much, but okay. I wasn't the only kid in America without HBO. I didn't have MTV either, so sue me. But I did happen to see a couple of films in the '80s that I liked quite a bit, and I'm nostalgic about. The funny thing about Starman <laughs> is, I thought I saw Starman. And I realized. Yes, you did. You said that I on the show. As it ended, uh, I never saw Starman. You mentioned in '84 the fact that Dune came out the same weekend as this. So many star movies in the early '80s, mm -hmm. right? And I had mistaken this for another 1984 star movie, The Last Starfighter, which I'm <laughs> not going to go into the plot of. Very that. different movies. Very different movie, except there is a doppelganger in that movie. That's true. Who does have a romance? 
with the main characters or attempts a romance girlfriend. with the main character's girlfriend. Yeah. So my whole adult life, I'm thinking that was Starman. Oh, my. <laughs> so, um, yes, The Last Starfighter, 8 from 84, may be a bonus episode at some point. We'll, we'll have to see. For now, let's let's focus on, on Starman, which I did watch for the first time. And I enjoyed well enough as an interesting attempt to meld two earlier Again, star-based movies, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think it was very much the screenwriters here, Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon. I have to imagine they took those two films as models and said, let's also throw in some romance. And those were the initial screenwriters. There were a bunch of other uncredited guys, apparently, on this movie. And maybe at one point someone else brought in... It happened one night for the sort of somewhat screwball, but mainly romantic road trip element. So, yeah, you can see all those elements at play here. That's the formula behind Starman. And um, the romance is probably its most distinctive element. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we're not going to delve into this as a Carpenter, a tourist interpretation, um, not because I run hot or cold on his work, but because I don't think that's really one of the more distinctive things about this film. I think it shows him maybe at the, the high point of his um, his formal creative control. I mean, this is exquisitely handsome. Every shot, pretty much. Um, I think you do get the creature effect of element course. that's very familiar yeah, when, he, Baker touches. when he grows. The, the, he arrives as a baby. Yeah. And then... <laughs> Over the course of 30 seconds, grows into the full-grown man. Now, I'm sorry, the Karen Allen character here, Jenny Hayden, Hayden, once you've seen that, no romance is possible. With that creature. This is a good point. Okay. I mean, that's kind of... She is so good in this performance, and I know okay. we're going to talk about that, but so in that moment, I'm not sure she sufficiently freaks out enough. Well, what are you supposed to do when you're getting shown? <laughs> I don't know. Shown that. So we're getting to it. Here's the thing about Starman, and this whole show is about bridges, and I went into Starman thinking the movie would be all about bridges. It's all about Karen Allen. I think as well as this movie works from the romance, um, just on a performance level, it is... Alan, at least for me. And it's interesting as well that, as you said, she's just coming off of the Spielberg collaboration here, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where as a kid, I did get to Raiders, Adam. Can you believe that? I made it to Raiders of the Lost Ark. I thought she was just I, – I would have been too young for it to be a crush. I just thought she was incredibly cool yeah. in Raiders, right? And I – you know, didn't see Starman, so sort of lost track of her. And I know she's been working since the 80s, um, but again, have not seen much. And this was such a refreshing reminder of how good Karen Allen is. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about it watching her in this movie. I, I, I would put her in this group of, you could call them ball-breaking brunettes from the era. I'd include Margot Kidder, um, who also, I remember, thinking was really cool in Superman. Maybe more reddish hair, Josh. I would maybe. I don't want to fact maybe. check you. Okay, could be. And I would also include Carrie Fisher. Sure. I mean, they're not blondes. Let me, that's the distinction here, right? right? And for whatever, you know, misnomers you want to say, there's, there's a different perception that comes with an actress who's not blonde. And I think that you have definitely Karen Allen falling into this idea where it's also distinctive, it's worth noting, from the emerging action heroines we were getting from, say, James Cameron in Aliens with Sigourney Weaver Mm -hmm. or eventually with Linda Hamilton in The Terminator and T2. These are more, quote unquote, feminine figures who nevertheless didn't put up with any crap. And that's what Karen Allen is doing here. As Jenny, she's she has this um, it's a unique combination of feistiness and vulnerability. So her hmm. characters aren't afraid to speak their mind, 
even though they know the cost of doing so. Right. She manages that really well. She's also very funny as Jenny. I like the asides that she tosses off that kind of puncture the preposterousness of this whole premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also has so much sorrow and yearning. She's legitimately deeply grieving. Yes. And that's the part that we need if we're going to believe she's getting over the freak baby growing into a man and actually fall for this guy. We need yeah. if the romance works at all, it's because of the way Alan gazes at Bridges as if this creature's mystery is her answer. And I feel like she sells that in all the scenes together so that even if something else, which I will probably disagree on, if Bridges' performance itself doesn't quite work as well for me as it does for most people, it didn't matter with Alan on the other side of it. Oh, we disagree. We're definitely going to get into a Bridges defense here in a little bit, though we do not disagree about Karen Allen. In fact, we agree a little bit too much. I'm looking at my notes. I had the words sorrow, vulnerability, and feisty. So we definitely <laughs> saw the same performance. And you're right that without those big Karen Allen eyes and those Carpenter close-ups and just the internal process that we really feel and understand that she's going through, this romance definitely would not work. And I watched earlier today the GQ video with Jeff Bridges. It's on YouTube where it's like a 15-minute video where it says Jeff Bridges breaks down his most iconic performances or something like that. Glean nothing from it. I mean, it's entertaining enough, but I didn't really get any insights from it that helped with this show except for one comment, and it was about Starman, and it was about Karen Allen. Hmm. Talking about that film, he pays her, I think, the ultimate compliment saying that he really feels like the movie does work. He's going to agree with you, I guess, Josh, though I'm not sure he's that self-deprecating. But he says it really does work because of Karen Allen. And the way he described it was, if you're a king in a movie and nobody is treating you like a king, then you're not a king. And she made this whole film come together. She made it feel real. That same Mm -hmm. king analogy applies to being an alien. You can be the greatest actor in the world, but if you're acting opposite someone who does not believe you as that alien and isn't responding to you and moment to moment listening to you and looking at you like you are genuinely an alien, then again, it doesn't matter how good you are. It's not going to work. Or romantically, it does work. romantically viable. I mean, I romantically think that's, viable. Here, I think yeah. that's, that's really the big thing. But I do want to talk about Bridges. What's your issue then with our seven time Oscar nominee? Well, so at first I thought, and I'll preface this with saying, if you find this to be a very moving romance, more power to you. I mean, I, I can see the appeal, it's appeal that way, mainly through the Allen lens again. But I can see how you might find Bridges alien to be a romantic figure. Uh, for me, at first, I thought, is it just, and I know I've praised some big performances this last year, but that it's the sort of bigness I don't like, where it's a lot of gesture and a lot of mannerism mm-hmm. um, without much meaning behind it. I, I mean, did the feel way that you not liking Bridges' performance was a mortal lock. I would have bet my mortgage on And I'm it. trying to figure out what it is because, again, like, why do I like Joaquin Phoenix being big in Joker? Why do yeah. I like, um, you I know, other other big night. performances? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm keeping you awake. But let's take one that I agree, we both agree on, Lupita Nyong'o in Us. Why, why do I like that? Which is a very big, an incredibly big performance. Um, so just getting back to Bridges here, it's, it is the mannerisms. It's the robotic repeating of phrases. And then the way he would pop his mouth open at the end of 
every last word of a phrase that, that just became thoroughly annoying to me. He's making some really committed choices here. Uh, the sh- quick, sharp movements that it's like he's almost a bird. Um, and, it's like that was his inspiration, and he, he's so consistent with that, which you'd have to be. There's that scene where he's fumbling with a fork at a diner, and I'm sorry, it just gave me the same hives as when I see sketch comedians play little kids. Oh man, uh, I don't know. I don't know if <laughs> other people have that problem, but I just immediately start to tense up, and it kind of had that element. Here, you know where that place is. If this is California and down here's Texas, it must be like uh, Arizona, maybe. Want to be driven. Arizona, maybe. This is where most people is. We're just going to say we didn't see it. I, I didn't see it, and other people did. I mm-hmm. do think it needed more humanity. I know he tries to bring some of that as the performance goes on. It never had enough for me. Where it, where this character registered as something beyond this robotic alien. Hmm. Um, but I figured out what it is, and this is something we'll get into more with our Bridges performances. Is that I think it might be an anti-Bridges performance. It's working against what is his essence. As an actor. And that to me, after watching a lot of scenes and revisiting things and watching some new stuff, is comfortableness in his own skin and ease on the screen that is so natural that whoever he's playing, there is not a second doubt that that's who he should be and who that character thinks he should be. And this is just by design a fish out of water character who is not ever going to be comfortable. And for me, there is just something um, at odds there where I don't think it works. I Hmm. don't know if it's that Bridges is doing anything wrong or bad. I don't know if the Bridges' essence matches this part. Well, we are talking about maybe an essence and not something really technical, so it might be hard to really break down and even talk about in the same terms. But I had a completely different revelation thinking about Bridges as I watched some of his films, rewatched some of his films and prepared for this top five. And that is that even though he does pull off often being that kind of cocky, smug, charming guy on screen, I was struck by how often his best performances were filled with discomfort and how often he seemed aloof and enigmatic. And in fact, that enigmatic quality, that being drawn to him, even though he never really is able to fully communicate or seems willing to fully communicate with you, is something that I find really attractive about Jeff Bridges, that he can be that aloof, and yet you are drawn to him even more. And yeah, with this performance in Starman, we just would characterize that humanity and I suppose even what classifies as being annoying a little bit differently. Of course, that's a totally subjective thing anyway. But on rewatch, I actually marveled at how Bridges managed to play this character with all those mannerisms without being annoying scene to scene. Part of it is, I will say, and I had never noticed this when I watched it back in 84 a hundred times, but he is imitating Scott to an extent when he does that. Yes, it's awkward as he is getting more comfortable in his skin and becoming more human. He is doing an imitation very clearly of a human being, but he's also imitating Scott down to the specifics of that cocked head and even that click of the mouth that you described a little bit. If you go back to the moment that he watches on the film projector, the whole the movie scene he sees, yeah. the whole movie scene that he actually witnesses is Scott acting completely goofy and over the top and exaggerated and he mouths to the camera to Jenny, I love you, without actually saying 
saying it. So he's really emphasizing his lips in the moment. And it's as if he watched that and said, well, that's that's the essence of who mm-hmm. Scott is. And I'm going to be that. I'm going to try to make her comfortable almost by being him every moment. So I do think he's patterning his behavior and manner a little bit off of that example. But for me, it isn't the mannerisms that make the performance anyway. And the word I kept coming back to was the compassion. It's more than just benevolence, which he obviously is this benevolent spirit. It's this compassion that I think is born from curiosity. And that, for me, is what really grounds the performance. And there being a certain intelligence to it, this this idea that, of course, as an alien, he has more wisdom in his head than anyone on Earth and is obviously capable of retaining information and processing information at a speed no one else can. And yet he's completely clueless when it comes to being a human. He's completely clueless in this environment. So there's that detached quality, but he's never dumb. You are always waiting for him to enlighten you in some way. And I also do think this is another thing maybe we saw differently as the film goes on, as he becomes more human, actually becomes more human, not just becomes better at imitating a human. A lot of those twitches and those ticks for me really do disappear. Hmm. And there are no emotional swells, but there's a lot of real feeling in the movie. When you think about that conversation he has now, granted, those ticks have also subsided a little bit because here he's kind of sick. But that scene where he's talking to Sherman, played by Charles Martin Smith, when he says, can I tell you what I admire about you as human beings? You really don't get any sense of those mannerisms at all. And again, I felt a lot of that real emotion underneath what he was saying and the subtlety of the feelings he's having watching Jenny, for example, start to get undressed in the hotel room where you realize, oh, this this alien's actually becoming a man. And he's looking at her the way maybe even her husband would have actually looked at her. And the scene on the train watching her sleep as the sun comes up and that exchange they have about the significance, I'll just say, of their night together. I think those are really genuinely heartfelt moments full of a lot of humanity. And I think the best moments, you go from one extreme, pure joy, to the other of absolute pain. One of my all-time favorite, and I certainly considered it for my top five moments, one of my all-time favorite Jeff Bridges moments, and it really is a moment, and that's why I didn't put it in my scenes, is the one after he fumbles for the fork, when he actually tries that Dutch apple pie that he's been told is terrific. And she's talking to him. And that face Jeff Bridges makes after he's actually tasted the pie and he's chewing it, it leaves him speechless. And it cracks me up every time. But more than just cracking me up, Josh, I really do feel like it captures exactly what it's like when you're a human being who tastes something truly transcendent. That satisfaction that he displays is really joyful to watch. And then I think about the look of bewilderment and the helplessness that he exhibits during the fight after he has revived this deer and let it go and angered these hunters that look on his face when he's getting beat up like, what is going on? He can't he can't fully process that even as he understands or seems to understand how innately violent a lot of humans seems to be. That look on his face also just crushes me. So I felt that full range of humanity that you were lacking. You love the Star Man. This I do. Was your crush in 84, Star Man. <laughs> Maybe it was, but I love I'm, it. I'm glad you said it, Josh, because that gets back to my question and what it is about the film that drew me to it in 84, because that's not something I thought about in 84. Right. I just watched it a lot. And I didn't watch every movie I saw like that again and again. And honestly, I had the same reaction to it this time. And we can get into some other flaws with the film if you want. I know that it is a film that 
probably doesn't belong in the top five or seven or eight, maybe even of Carpenter's films. I like many of his other films better. But I did have a very similar reaction watching it now as I did back in 84 or 85, because, again, it wouldn't have been really the romance on its own. It wouldn't have been any of the stars. It wouldn't have been the action or even the sci-fi element. And I do feel like looking back on it, I felt a certain connection to that character. And I was fascinated by the way this outsider saw our world and what that sort of made me feel and how I looked at the world as a kid, as a nine-year-old. I felt probably a lot like this Starman character who was a little bit of an outsider, who saw the world as mysterious and big and unknowable and was trying to make sense of it all, all the time. So I was just as curious and confused as this character is in this film and watching it through his eyes and seeing it with eyes that are as compassionate and with as much clarity as he shows us, I think that excited me. It excited me now watching it again. Yeah, no, that, I could see that. I could see that connecting with a kid because you're right. A lot of that, the elements that I would have liked at that age are probably not at strengths. Those, so some of them are interesting. I mean, some of the ideas of how he got there, his ship, although I think the whole any segment really with the the Charles Martin Smith character, the government scientist on their tail is is pretty rudimentary and kind of slows things down quite a bit. Thankfully, there's not a ton of those. You mentioned when you were talking earlier, though, uh, one characteristic of Bridges' character is the benevolence. And I do think that is maybe also interesting to kids and to us now, but might have been interesting to kids in 84, is this idea. It's drawn from E.T., of course, Mm -hmm. but that not every space creature is going to be a War of the Worlds type monster. Yeah. Um, I think that's one that's probably the reason E.T. is such a childhood classic, one that is that does deeply resonate with children. So I can see that absolutely being uh, an appealing aspect of his character and – you know, another reason why the romance might work as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's something that's going to be attractive to someone, even if she didn't have the personal connection with him having mm-hmm. her her dead husband's form and shape. Um, so you mentioned, and I don't know how much we want to spoil, but let's, we, I think we can. It's an 84 movie. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you. You mentioned the significance of their night together yes. on the train. I'm, I'm assuming you're implying that she ends up being pregnant mm-hmm. um, with a um, a star baby who, if I followed star it baby. correctly, um, hopefully it's it's not a star baby that's going to grow up in thirty <laughs> seconds to a man, but will, when this baby is born, have all the knowledge that the alien does. He is says that, that is that what he, he says? Okay, he says it. So. And, and she, I do like – at first, you know, I was getting a little creepy vibes with how that whole thing went down. I mean, might not play up to, uh, you know, contemporary standards of consent entirely, but I'm not going to hold that well, against the movie. I will just say really quickly <laughs> that – well, consent – well, you know, part of it, certainly the act itself, but the secondary act that we are talking about, what the ramifications are, let's say, of their – Yes. Well, that's what I wanted to get to. Yes. I mean, the consent element for me is that like a couple he, things happen while her, she's sleeping. He Let's gives just her say. a way out. He does give her a way out. Yes. Yes. He he, he doesn't give Which her much of a choice that part for when me. she's sleeping. But you're right. Later on, he does say to her, do you want this baby? Yeah. Once he explains the situation. So that is my question for you, Adam Kempenar. Uh-huh. Would you want that space baby? <laughs> this is a child yeah. that is going to know far more than you know when the child is born. I mean, uh, uh, no. 
I don't want any part of that. <laughs> well, this is a good question that is, in a lot of ways, secondary from the film itself. Well, of because course it in is. terms of the movie itself, I believed that she would want to keep it, and that's all that really matters. And I guess to play your little game, you're right. That's a scary proposition. <laughs> Raising a child is terrifying enough. But, yeah, I think I would be in. You'd pass. Okay. I think I'd be in. What? You'd be in? Yeah, I'd be in. You would not be I'd in. I'd be in. I mean, I'm the one who thinks the end of Rosemary's Baby is touching. Okay? So, you know what? That's that's what we do as parents. We accept. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, I'm glad you can see it that way. This brings us full circle, though, back to Karen Allen. That scene where she explains that she and Scott were unable, she's unable to have a baby. Right. Um, is a good example of everything kind of depending on her delivery of it. It's it's sort of a... Yeah. a, a you know, unfortunately staged, they're having this conversation in a, the back of a pickup truck as it goes down the road. And the mm-hmm. whole scene kind of ends a little abruptly. Um, but when she is talking and again, bringing that sense of of sorrow of this whole other aspect of her life that that brings her deep sadness, we completely believe it. And to your point, it pays off later when we understand that this absurd idea that he's presenting her, we could kind of see why why she is considering it. So, yeah, I just I think so much of this movie depends on Alan. I think it's notable that Carpenter, you mentioned those big eyes and the close ups mm-hmm. that there's a lot of close encounters shenanigans going on. Yeah. Getting out to the West and, and the mountains and, and, and yeah, the, the military craft landing. Yeah. But he leaves us with Alan's face. Yeah. The last he does. shot is a close up of Alan's face. Well, I think it is clear that whether some might argue it was just laziness on his part as a filmmaker, perhaps, I would say it's clear that Carpenter just really didn't care about that element of the film. Yeah, and thus he knew where the heart of it did, was. Yeah, go a little bit quickly over that. And ultimately, it does make the movie better that it doesn't dwell too much on that military angle. That NSA director, Fox, who's played by Richard Jekyll, is your classic government bad guy. Mm-hmm. And there's no new element, no new wrinkle really to it. And I think that Carpenter on some level, besides maybe just not caring and wanting to focus on the romance, I do think maybe he understood that this is just one of those kind of unassailable truths we can all accept about our response to visitors and sort of American militarism and this idea that anything alien is going to be seen as a threat that has to be captured or possibly killed, at least dissected, it seems in this case. And he doesn't feel the need to give us any major scenes where there's huge philosophical debates on this subject. We get one kind of low-key debate between Fox and the Sherman character, but otherwise Carpenter just presents this as the way things are. And there is a little bit of that Carpenter cynicism here. If you think about movies like They Live and, of course, even The Thing, this challenging of authority a little bit and being cynical about humanity as a kind of barbaric and frightened bunch. But I love that there is then, in contrast to some of those movies, a real earnestness and a real sense of hopefulness that we get in this film. Now, some would say that's maybe where Carpenter is selling out a little bit, but I guess I felt enough conviction here in Starman, the first film in our 8 from 84 series. It is available on DVD, Blu-ray, and most digital platforms if you want to try to relive your childhood as I did. Starman, not one of the options in the film spotting poll, asking listeners to name their favorite movie of 1984. We'll have those results next, plus our top five Jeff Bridges scenes. Stay with us. I've been loved and I've been alone. All my life I've been a rolling stone. Done everything that a man can do. Everything to get a hold on you. 
Listening to Film Spotting. A couple of ways to join the Tenenbaum family. If you're Owen Wilson's Eli Cash, you just kind of hang around. Maybe you try and start something with Margot. If all else fails, you start taking mescaline, paint your face, and crash your sports car into the front of the Tenenbaum manse. Maybe you're Gene Hackman's royal, you fake stomach cancer. Both of these things, Josh, they're very risky. The benefits are questionable. <laughs> if you want to join the Film Spotting family, though, on Patreon, not risky at all. It's just going to cost you five bucks a month. And you actually do get benefits out of it. You get, yeah, some exciting benefits, I think. But let's back up a little bit. Yeah. What's a Patreon? What is a Patreon? We've had listeners over the years suggest that they really want to contribute to the show. Not big fans of PayPal. Had we ever thought about Patreon, this new platform that was really supporting a lot of podcasters, but a lot of creators in general. And it's a platform that really allows you to better engage with your community and to deliver to them very easily some additional benefits, some bonus content, perhaps even. And for a podcast, being able to deliver audio that goes specifically to each user who has signed on to get some additional stuff. That's content we wouldn't otherwise be sharing here on the show. Not taking anything away at all from the normal show. Nothing's changing there. But if you want to offer a little bit more to some of those most passionate, most dedicated listeners, Patreon's really the place that allows you to do that. In a way, we're kind of late to the game on this. We are. Right? I mean, podcasts have been doing this for a few years now, at least. And as Sam wrote about in the Film Spotting newsletter this week, it is the perfect fit for film spotting going all the way back way before I joined the show in 05 when you and Sam as starting it had listeners pretty quickly yeah. on just offering to send in donations. We didn't to ask keep the show. Going. People just wanted to make sure the show kept going and they sent us money. And what were your costs? What there? a country like, like a $5 movie ticket or something <laughs> pretty like much. That? I so. mean, hosting then was pretty cheap. The expenses in general were a lot less, including we didn't have as big of a group of people working on the show. It was just me and Sam. And we didn't really see it as work. Not that we view it that way now necessarily either, but it was a case where it was just a hobby on the side. It was just an excuse. We were going to go see those movies anyway. Why not talk about them? Obviously, it's gotten a little more complicated since then for the better. Yeah, I think complicated is the word. I mean, the terms, the scale of the production of the show, yeah. but also the world outside around it. There, you know, being a small listener supported show worked for a long time. Um, and definitely as podcasts grew, we grew alongside with that. But with the explosion of podcasts, keeping a show viable, it, it, it does take a lot more when there are, I mean, everyone listening probably knows at least two or three friends who have podcasts. It's just a more crowded field. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a way, as you said, to kind of reconnect with those listeners, an easy way for them to continue giving support and something we haven't done beyond some thank yous on air, Right, give them something in return, yeah, some get actual content, which we should probably get to and talk a little bit about yeah, what our plans are. We definitely should. I just want to touch on one other aspect before we do that, and that is that even though we are on WBEZ, I think it's worth noting because I'm not sure a lot of our listeners are aware of this, we are 
100% independently produced. We always have been since the very beginning of the show. We have a wonderful content sharing partnership with WBEZ, but it's not a financial partnership at all. So the fact that we are tied to an NPR affiliate isn't something that is really helping to keep the show afloat at all. And also, even though we're very lucky, including in this show, to have a couple of ad reads, if you've been listening pretty regularly, a lot more of our ads have been those kind of third-party ad reads, which I'll just say it, aren't quite as financially lucrative as the ones where we get to express our thoughts on the product. So this is a case where the landscape of podcasts and advertising is really changing. We want to make sure that we've been doing the show for 15 years, that we can keep doing it for at least 15 more. And we really do think that Patreon is the best platform to make that happen, especially because we are able to give you additional things for your money and for your support. So speaking of ads, if you do become a member of the Film Spotting family and $5 a month, one of the benefits will be ad-free episodes. So the shows that you get are going to be ad-free. You also get early downloads. And we talked about, you know, the window of this. The show comes out on Fridays and we're looking at pretty consistently being able to deliver those a day ahead. Again, for those who are part of the Patreon Film Spotting family. We've got live show pre-sales available for patrons as well as discounts. And here's the really meaty part, probably the one we've been going back and forth for a good two or three months. Mm -hmm. What is this monthly bonus show that we want to offer? What is that going to look like? And we came up with a handful of good ideas. We sort of decided to go with all of them. Yeah. We're going to keep walk it, us through this. We're going to keep it a little bit flexible. We think that will benefit us and it will benefit you in the end that rather than latching on to just one kind of topic area or category, it makes more sense to have a few different options. And we like these options. The first one is one we're calling SVU Redux, or you might call it TV spotting. Basically, we're going to review something that is streaming, a streaming series. It might be a streaming movie that we otherwise wouldn't talk about on the show, but I think at least initially we are going to look at some TV series. We get emails all the time from people saying, I'd really mm -hmm. love to hear what you think about Watchmen on HBO or whatever the exciting series might be. And now there are so many platforms putting out exciting series, whether it's HBO or it's Hulu or it's Amazon Prime. We are going to give you some options. That's the other thing we haven't mentioned. We're going to give you some categories, but as listeners, you get to pick which exact topic we're going to focus on. So if we pick, say, three streaming series to consider, the one that gets the most votes from our patrons will ultimately decide which one we watch and talk about. It will always be interactive in that way with the listeners. Another one is an offshoot of this 8 from 84 series we're doing. Whether we call it Best Year Ever or 8 Isn't Enough from 84, we're going to take some movies that didn't quite make the cut for our lineup, give you a vote, and talk about it. Another one that I am really looking forward to is called We Were Wrong Once, where we're going to revisit, and this is in you know, quotation marks, a questionable review. And for the people who go all the way back to the Sam days here on the show, remember him as a host. You'll like this one too. He's going to join the fun for this. They may not always go back to reviews that he did on the show, but think about some of those reviews. If you go way back to 2005 with us, like when we split violently on Sin City or I praised Revenge of the Sith all out of proportion and I think gave it five stars or something. We might be due 15 years later to revisit those films and see if 
either of our opinions have changed on him and then get you as sort of the independent arbiter to weigh in as well. So that's going to be great having Sam. I think the only time I've been able to do a review with Sam, speaking of film spotting family yeah, the and Tenenbaums. the Tenenbaums was when we were up near his house and we did a Tenenbaums revisit. But yeah, so again, the patron vote is going to be a big part of this. So say for this month, we're going to do, we were wrong once. We would offer you the chance to vote between Sin City, Sith, and then a third option. Yes. And whatever voters, whatever wins, that is the review we're going to do. So there are three different types of bonus episodes we're offering. SVU, Redo, Best Year Ever, and We Were Wrong Once. There's going to be two other types that we'll offer. Blind spotting, simply crossing off the films we most need to see. Adam and I both have massive lists of quote-unquote classics or cult favorites that we somehow missed. Might Must not have made it on HBO in the 80s, Adam. Somehow you not. didn't see it. So we're going to track those down and offer an episode that digs into one of those. And then this other option for a bonus show, for a bonus episode, we're calling The Goats. So dissecting the greatest of all time scenes. Yes. I love digging into the minutia, the nitty gritty, as we're going to do on this episode when we talk about bridges, scenes. This is a chance to devote an entire episode to a single sequence in a well-known film. And again, we'll come up with three of those, three yeah. options. Patrons get to vote. And we may not even come up with the three options because you will do that for us through interacting with us on the Patreon platform. You might come up with three amazing scenes you would love to hear us discuss, and we will consider those and put them up for vote. And that really gets to the next point. We've come up with these five topic areas. Going back to the very beginning of the show, the structure was always a review. We had the top five idea. We had Massacre Theater. Almost everything else that has followed, whether it's our marathons, whether it's Film Spotting Madness, even the name Film Spotting itself, all came from listeners. It drives everything we do. So we're excited about those options that we listed, but we also know that once you guys hear this and you get on the platform, you might come up with some other topic area that we hadn't considered that would make for a really good show, and maybe we'll put it in rotation. So let me try to simply sum this up. That was a lot we threw at yes. you, but basically, if you do become a member of the Film Spotting family at Patreon, four or five bucks a month, what you're going to get in addition to those ad-free episodes, the early downloads, and the live show pre-sales and discounts is a monthly bonus show. So every month you're going to get an extra show just for patrons. It will be one of those mm -hmm. five topics or so we listed and the specific topic of that episode will be voted on by patrons. That's it. And we are grateful to everyone who has signed up already. We did just launch it this week. And if you are curious to get more information about becoming a member of the Film Spotting family or you are ready to sign up, you can do that at patreon.com slash filmspotting. A few people, Josh, have already figured out that if they were donating via PayPal, they had a monthly subscription, that it made sense for them to cancel that PayPal subscription and head on over to Patreon, put their money on that platform so now they can be part of that community, they can be part of the family and get those added benefits. I will throw out there that if you're a listener who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to get on the Patreon platform, you can stay on PayPal. Nothing is changing there. Certainly on our end, you're welcome to change your donation there anytime you want, but you can absolutely stay on that platform if you would like. And we've had a couple listeners who have been so generous, Josh, as to see the Patreon, decide they definitely want to be part of the film spotting family, but then they've gone over to PayPal and they've still thrown a little bit of extra money our way. 
supporting the show. We wanted to single out those two listeners now, our new donors this week, starting with a gold-level donor. And Sam brought back an oldie but a goodie here, something that was the foundation of all of our early donations to the show. Somehow people actually paid money to have our producer, then co-host Sam, come up with a goofy nickname. And he decided that after much discussion about it on various social media platforms, he would bring them back for Nick and Scott here. So a gold level donor, Nick, ice cream a day keeps the demons away, Principe in Westfield, New Jersey. Nick sent us this note. We follow that rule in our house, Nick. As 2019 wraps up and I see that you're planning your end of the decade shows, I'm reminded of the best of the 2000s show that Film Spotting did 10 years ago and how it hooked me on Film Spotting. Although if I'm being honest with myself, I was probably hooked at that point anyway. I haven't donated in the past and I felt the need to rectify that. Over 10 years of top fives, reviews, marathons, and massacre theaters is worth way more than just this donation and I'm ashamed it's taken me this long. Consider this the start of back pay for the hours and hours of entertainment over the years. Adam, Maddie, Sam, and Josh have all played a role in my growth as a cinephile, and I'm grateful for that. I feel like everyone has a go-to film spotting moment. Maybe not my favorite, but fresh in my mind was listening to your review of The Dead Don't Die after seeing it and loving it, and realizing that, of course, you both had a thoughtful conversation, full of insight, even though it got pretty unfavorable reviews elsewhere. Thanks for doing what you do each week and making the vast film community feel a little bit smaller and more thoughtful. Best of luck in another decade. Thanks so much for that, Nick. And I do want to touch on one part of his email, talking about that film spotting moment and the Dead Don't Die review. I mentioned to you and Sam recently that as we're embarking on this 15th anniversary celebration, and especially with some of these live shows coming up that we will announce here at some point as we lock in the dates and locations, we're going to call on you guys to share a few of those moments. Maybe it was a certain top five. Maybe it was a review like that. Maybe it was just something funny that happened on the show. But if there was a moment that was the moment where you realized, okay, this is a show I want to listen to every week. We hope you have one of those. We would love to hear it. You can go ahead and get started on that. If you'd like, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We also got this from Scott Foosballweather Lunt in Denver. He's a Platinum Club donor. I was happy to see you launching on Patreon today, so signed up right away. I also sent off a catch-up donation, which was long overdue, and somewhat of a thank you for the drinks and conversation during multiple film spotting meetups with Josh in Boulder. Thank you for all of the insight on films I love but couldn't express why, for challenging me to reconsider films I might not have loved, and for the exposure to films I didn't know I would love so much. Thanks for all the laughs and for all your efforts to keep the movie conversations going. And yeah, that's been a real treat to meet up with Scott, not only Scott, but a couple of folks when I'm out at uh, University of Colorado Boulder each April. And uh, yeah, a little reunion every year we get to have. I'll be doing it again this year. Yeah, that should be fun. Again, patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you can sign up to be a member of the film spotting family. It's $5 a month, though. If you're feeling extra generous, you can customize the amount and make it more than that and get all of those benefits and Once again, we'll say thank you to everyone who has signed up so far and shared a lot of kind words and encouraging feedback. Next week on the show, we are going to start our best of the decade conversation with the best performances of the decade. We know that everyone else in the world has already done their best of decade stuff. We wanted to wait until we got through that final year before fully reckoning with it. Now, I'm going to throw it out on the show because it will make me feel good to say it, even though it probably won't happen. I have exactly a week 
to try to convince you and Sam that we're not actually doing this top five. <laughs> that would probably be okay because with me. Because I'm overwhelmed as we sit here right now trying to imagine that I'm going to narrow down the top five performances by an actor, the top five performances by an actress, and have interesting things to say about them a week from now. Yeah, I mean, I haven't like really been giving much thought to the specific performances. I've been thinking more in terms of films. Mm-hmm. I, I, here's, here gives you a sense. My list <laughs> right now in Letterboxd, I think it's 250 films strong right. that I'm considering for that really have a shot of making the top 20. Like legit. Like these are just the movies I saw That's in the crazy. last 10 Mine's years. only probably about 65 well, that you, are in the running pro- for 20. You've probably been doing more whittling than me. I'm going to try yeah. to get it down to like 50. That's going to be the next cut. But these are movies that I've given, you know, on my site, three and a half out of four star reviews mm-hmm. to or higher. So these are all movies I really loved over the last 10 years. Um, so, yeah, that's a couple of weeks. Next week, if we're going to do performances and I haven't even started focusing on that, I'm open to other ideas, Adam. Yeah, I, I know. I'm totally Woe open to us, other but, ideas. But now as we get through this episode and once we get past the live show this weekend, I – We'll have to turn my attention to this and at which the, point we'll the have panic will two days. Set in. We'll have two days. It's already starting to set in. Have you heard it in my voice now? You talk about the best films of the decade as if the performances wasn't hard enough. We then did plan over the next two subsequent weeks to share our top 20 films of the decade. And we're kind of locked into this because doing only 10 seems really absurd. But also, as mentioned by one of those listeners, we did do the top 20 of the decade back 10 years ago, of course. And it was episode 300 of the show, I believe. So a big show did bring us a lot more exposure, a lot of new listeners. It sort of feels like we're just going to have to do this every decade unless we come up with something better to do, Josh. So I don't know. Maybe we can just take a month off, though I'm not sure we can do that after we just launched the We'll just give you the bonus content. No. Can we just give you the bonus content? <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. Oh. But th- there's also the perfect time with Film Spotting Madness, so we got to do it. This is true. Film Spotting Madness 2020 is around the corner. Th- this is a busy time of year for it's us. so busy. <laughs> because we're doing best of the 2010s. And yeah, this is a plan. This has been a, can we call it a three-year plan? It has been. 2018, we did the best films of the 90s as Film Spotting Madness. Again, if you're new to the show, this is our bracket-style yeah. tournament where we throw in 64 plus with play-ins titles. Yes. Listeners vote, decide which one should move on until we crown a champion. So in 2018, we did best of the 90s. 2019, best of the 2000s. Obviously, we're here. 2020, it is time for the best of the 2010s, and it just worked perfectly yeah. that everyone has been doing this. And, and you say we're behind, Adam. I think it's just, you know, we were waiting for all the mistakes to be made, and now we'll offer the correct list. That's exactly right. And Sam and I have been working on this for about a year, not nonstop. And in fact, we took <laughs> I don't believe that. a pretty big hiatus. I don't that. No, we took a pretty big hiatus over the holidays, and then I had to remind him one day on Slack, you know madness is coming, right? Like, when are we going to do that? I'm actually blaming the fact that we don't have tour dates yet on Film Spotty Madness. Yeah. Yeah, it it might be responsible ultimately, but we have put in a lot more work recently and we've got it to a pretty good place. We have it to the point where we think we've got basically the bracket, the 64 films, as you mentioned, and then a healthy number of play-ins that I think a lot of people will have fun with. Play-ins where they're not just there because we decided to throw in some extra titles. Like, I don't know 
what listeners are going to pick between those two films in pretty much yeah. every case. A I lot think of it's these be really fun. A lot of these listeners have lobbied for these yes. play-ins, right? There yeah. may be and not the not obvious make answers, everyone happy. but the you can't. Well, the the point of films by madness is <laughs> to make true. no one happy. It's madness, and we will anger a few listeners, but that's fine. It's going to start next week. The play-in contests will be revealed. I think there are seventeen or. 30 of them, maybe, maybe fewer, but they're really good. Trust me. And you will have fun. I say fun. You'll have to pull your hair out voting for a few of these, but I think it will be a good time. And that is all next week. If you do have any best of the decade feedback for us, you can share it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at film spotting, send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net, or send us an audio file or leave us a voicemail. 312-264- Zero seven four four. If anyone wants to just send me their list of those Please. best performances, I'll take it. You have read our listener feedback. They're pretty brilliant. This they is, can do our list. This is what I'm saying. Okay. If you happen to be listening, we've referenced this already, but if you happen to be in this area and you're hearing this before Saturday the 8th, please come celebrate 15 years of film spotting with us at the historic Music Box Theater. We're going to talk. We're going to watch a movie. We'll talk some more. We will definitely have some drinks. We're going to watch Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo in 35mm. Michael Phillips will be there. Three of the hosts of the next picture show, Scott, Tasha, Keith, will all be there mingling with listeners. We might even get Sam and Michael to join us on stage for a little post-screening discussion. And we think it'd be fun to celebrate 15 years with all of you. So please do come out. More information is available at filmspotting.net slash events. A mega meetup. It's going to be That's a it. mega meetup for people in the Chicagoland area. The, the Midwest, I mean, if you're just hearing this now, it might be a little hard to make a road trip. But if you can pull it off, come. Let's hang out. Let's knock out that best performance of the 2010s list. Why we not? can do that live. We'll That's take it. suggestions from you. Face-to-face, our list will be done, Adam, after the live show. It's all coming together. (laughs) Saturday, February 8th, again in the evening at the Music Box Theater, filmspotting.net slash events. We're very excited to have WBEZ on board as a media sponsor of this tour stop, which is presented by our friends at MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've been dying to see, or one you've never even heard of before. There's always something new to discover. And Josh, a few of our listeners who come to the live show on Saturday night are going to win a movie prize pack. And I think we're even going to be able to give away some trial memberships. Fantastic. They'll be very, very happy with that because at movie, every film is hand selected. Basically, you don't have to spend all that time looking for something you think is going to be great to watch and then actually end up with something that's not so great. This is like your own personal film festival, except it's streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting for a whole month of great cinema for free. One final plug. Our friends at The Next Picture Show, yeah, they've got a pretty great podcast, and they like to pair a recent release with a classic movie. This week, appropriate for Oscars weekend, they have paired Sam Mendes' 1917 with Peter Weir's World War I film Gallipoli. And next week, it's a new pairing. One of the best films of 2019, we certainly agree with that. Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire with Josh's beloved The Piano. You're going to download this a thousand times. My heart is so full, Adam. As I said on our Top Ten show, when I saw that reference to The Piano in the first five minutes of Portrait of a Lady on Uh Fire, it was already on my Top Ten list. It was just a matter of how high this—I mean, they always— 
come up with brilliant pairings, yeah. and this is absolutely perfect. One of those films is definitely a masterpiece. New Adam, episodes. Adam, you don't when you say something I as know. misguided as that the piano is not a masterpiece. You just keep that to yourself. Okay, you don't put that out there. Gotcha. New episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. More info at nextpictureshow.net. Massacre Theater is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. Now, how did we not think about this? I know we're still putting the run of show together. Michael Phillips is going to be on stage. Might we force him to do some acting? Because we found out last week. He's got some chops. In case you missed it, here's a little bit of it. No fooling the sheriff's got himself a girl? I think so, but uh, he doesn't know it yet. She's got him on the run, huh? <laughs> sure has. <laughs> I'm just assuming that's how Michael talks from now on. Uh-huh. Like, he enjoyed himself so much doing that. He's yes. just He speaks that way. And so, yes, I do expect him at the live show to only talk in that voice. If you know what film, what character... He was doing there. Email the movie's title along with your name and location. All you need is the film's title to enter, but send it to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. You think you was going to get away from me? I know you too well now, Freddie. You die. It's too late, Kruger. I know the secret now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. Heather Langenkamp and Robert England in the best film of 1984, Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. A yes, couple Adam, of weeks ago, I know you feel fact, that way, it Josh. Is. Along with the announcement of our 8 from 84 series, we asked you to tell us what is definitively the best film of 84. There was a point, it was, I'll admit, fairly early in the voting. The poll had been up, though, for like a day or two, and I felt I felt bad for poor Freddie and poor Josh that your beloved A Nightmare on Elm Street hadn't gotten a single vote. That's okay. Horror fans, we don't need that sort of validation mm. of the populace, hmm. Adam. We, we just yeah. know a masterpiece when we see it, okay. and, and we enjoy it. I so had, how did it finish? I had a dream myself that A Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> won this poll, well, and then I woke up and realized yeah. it came in last place with 6% of the vote. Again, that's fine. Doesn't doesn't hurt my experience of the movie. This is a little puzzling, though. I kind of expected that. This is a little puzzling. Stop making sense in second to last place with 10% of the vote. It was close, though. Ghostbusters just ahead of it with 11% of the vote. Then came The Terminator, 13%. The other category received 14% of the vote. And here were some of the more popular suggestions. Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas. Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. And the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. We technically consider that to be an 85 film. Yeah, but. I know it's confusing. I know it says 84 on IMDb, but it really didn't play anywhere in the States in a theater other than I think at a film festival, maybe Sundance even, until 1985. So it's an 85 film. That's how a lot of people do classify it. We went through this back when we did our top five films of 84 a while ago, but absolutely understand it getting some love here. So at the top of the poll here, this is Spinal Tap, 18% of the vote, but really running away with it. Mm. Amadeus at 30%. All my officers assemble. Yes. We're, we're yes. reporting for duty, Josh. Cap- Captain Kempinar got everyone in line. Though I do feel 
that I need to point out, even though I love Amadeus and went to bat for it last week. It's not your favorite film of 84, It actually was my number two film of 84. I put Spinal Tap just ahead of it. So I'm what still you, a, I'm what did still you a vote cop. for, Adam? No, were, I've, were I you... voted for Spinal Tap. Okay, yeah, right. I voted for Spinal Tap. I'm still a cop, <laughs> but maybe I'm I'm just a just a captain or something. I'm not the chief of police here for Amadeus. We heard from Kevin Powers in Clinton, Tennessee. All of these movies are deserving of consideration, but Amadeus stands out above the rest. Not only is one of the most entertaining movies ever made at three hours running time, no less, but also as a showcase for two of the best performances in film history. He says in the same movie. The cackling Tom Hulse, the brooding F. Murray Abraham, the music, the production design. I first watched it in middle school as part of a music appreciation class, and it changed me. It also connected me to my now late father. He adored the works of Milos Forman and placed this one at the top. I always loved finding those connections with my dad, and I suppose that personal, sentimental connection is what puts this above other favorites from 84, like The Genius Stop Making Sense, The Hilarious This Is Spinal Tap, and The Wisecracking Fun of Ghostbusters, which, Josh, you are way underappreciating. Here, here. That movie is my childhood and I was a 90s kid. Speaking of Josh comments here, I do want to throw in that Terminator reminded me that between that film, I'm sure I wasn't the only person listening to you talk about Starman who thought about this. Oh, having Terminator flashbacks. Between yeah. Terminator and yeah. Starman, you're just Which, not digging on 80s sex scenes. Well, jeez. Oh, yeah, those could I be, wonder if we can those su- could be pretty rough. I wonder if we can find <laughs> I wonder if we can find some more that can make you really uncomfortable. Well, what uh, is there one in Footloose? Does Fo- I'm trying to remember. Mm. Seems like that would some have something not on the level really of those other awkward, two. But yeah, know, there's a yeah. fair amount of awkwardness. Yeah, and, and just for the record, uh, um, you know, Ghostbusters, which I like. I think three out of four stars is just plenty generous enough for Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Your Amadeus argument there, though, Kevin, hard to argue with that sort of personal connection. Let's hear from Emily, who is currently living in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, but she wants us to know she still has a Georgia driver's license. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up, Emily. Just heard Josh say that Gremlins is a better movie than Ghostbusters. Here we go. And I'm actually furious. Love it. I had to vote for Ghostbusters here in an attempt to correct Josh's insanely incorrect statement. How dare you, sir? You should be ashamed of yourself. I hope a rewatch of both movies gets you to come to your senses. That won't One happen. is a timeless classic. The other is dated and corny. I think you agree with those statements. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Just Emily, the opposite films. I, I hope you figure out which is which. Wow. I mean, Ghostbusters, I... I've revisited relatively recently, so mm. we'll, we'll see if I give it yet another try. And I don't, I don't know. I feel like I like it just fine. I don't know why I have to like it anymore. Gremlins, if I come away from Gremlins thinking it's anything less than um, a brilliant piece of horror satire, I'll be really sad. Mm. Well, I've got all my officers behind me for the Amadeus discussion, and I've got people like Emily and I'm sure many others out there ready to defend me in the Ghostbusters v. Gremlins battle. But I will say right now, I'm not for sure that I'm going to be arguing for Ghostbusters v. Gremlins. I have not seen Gremlins since 84. Maybe I'll feel the same way Josh does. Maybe no. somehow no. Maybe somehow we'll both be arguing that Gremlins is a better film. There, there is no way and then that Gremlins cancel your podcast. <laughs> There's no way Gremlins is your thing. <laughs> that 8 from 84 Ghostbusters v. Gremlins showdown. That's currently scheduled for June, I think, just before the new Ghostbusters comes out. We got this from... Gers, off the top of your head, recite me any line from Amadeus. Now recite me any line from This is Spinal Tap. Case closed. Not bad. <laughs> Not like bad the, lawyering. The very clear criteria there. Yeah. 
Kathy Woder also says, we got an Alexa for Christmas, and the first song my son requested was Sex Farm Woman. We raised that kid right. Spinal Tap for the win. It's true that Spinal Tap is a movie I can pretty much recite from beginning to end. So, What's really impressive about this is that Kathy's kid is five. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, Benjamin Haworth writes in. Amadeus, excellent film. The Terminator and Nightmare on Elm Street, horror masterpieces. This is Spinal Tap, still so damn funny. But to me, the clear winner is Stop Making Sense. I recently rewatched the film as it was covered on the Blank Check podcast, and I was once again blown away by the outer perfection. It's like this absolutely perfect object, a celebration of joy and creativity. It's not just an incredible performance by the talking heads, but an amazing visual splendor. It's so infectiously charming that I find myself watching at least one song from it almost every week. Flawless film, ultimate 1984 picture, and maybe the best film of that decade. Hmm. Well, I've got it at number three. It's my third favorite film of 84. Is that good enough? Uh, no, because I feel like I had it possibly at two. You might have. Does that sound right? Man, what a, what a throwdown. If only we could look this up somewhere. <laughs> Over stop making sense. Looking ahead to our best of the decade conversation, we have a new poll question for you. And this is one of those Sam questions that really is pretty thoughtful and did require a lot of work. I'm sure it's going to become one of our patented problematic film spotting poll questions. Yeah, deeply deeply flawed. flawed. Thank you. That's the terminology I always forget where we're going to get responses pointing out all the couples that we overlooked here. But Sam's idea was to explore acting duos of the 2010s. These are movies that when you think about them, you think of two key performances. And in most cases, movies that are centrally about the relationship between these characters. Now, we heard a listener there say, in the case of the 80s, you're talking Tom Hulse and F. Murray Abraham from Amadeus. I like Tom Hulse in that movie. I'm not sure I put him quite on the level with F. Murray Abraham, but these are a couple of duos that Sam thinks are certainly equals. A lot of good options to consider, and these are the options we gave you. Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara in Carol. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix in The Master. Recent one here, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver in Marriage Story. Then Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy in Mad Max Fury Road. And the last option, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling in La La Land. We will give you the choice of other as well. Yeah, we're not going to read all of the others, but Sam, at least in the film spotting newsletter this week, gave you a few to consider, including how about Juliette Binoche and William Schimmel in Certified Copy and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy in Before Midnight. So many good ones. It's going to be a very tough one to vote in. Do you have an initial vote Josh. Well, it's going to be who can challenge, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and the master. I do. Yeah. But but you're probably decided, right? Yeah. It's yeah. It's a no brainer for you. I I'm going to give some more thought to Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy and Mad Max Fury Road. Mm -hmm. Very different, not only different performances, but different ways of two main characters interacting. And I think that's probably what Sam's getting getting at here. Mm -hmm. It's not just a film with two great performances, two towering performances, but how they re- those characters relate to each other and the performance relate to each other. I think Theron and Hardy in Mad Max Fury Road are crucial to what that movie is all about. So I'm going to give that some more thought. Okay. In early voting, not a surprise so far, it is the master. And one listener, Adam Graff, wrote in and said it's totally unfair with those two on the list. It might just be, see, again, a deeply flawed Sam Van Hallgren poll question. We would love to hear your thoughts and love to get your vote. You can do that now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, we hope you do. Please let us know where you're listening from. 
Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding in Kent. I love Jeff Bridges. I'm hoping that some of his 80 movies get love, like uh, Kiss Me Goodbye or Tucker, The Man in His Dream or Jagged Edge. But I've got a plump for uh, the first MCU villain, Obadiah Stone from Iron Man. And yes, I know in the third act, it just becomes Rock'em Sock'em Robots. But leading up to that, there is just such richness to his villainy. And no scene is better than the, the one where he lets all the rage out on poor Peter Billingsley, who was the kid in Christmas Story, actually, when he tells him that Tony Stark built this in a cave with a box of scraps. The scene is so good that they brought it back in Spider-Man Far From Home, and I was pleased to see it again. Thank you all very much. Love the show. We get to our top five Jeff Bridges scenes now. Great stuff from Henrik Hansen. Couple of nods to other Jeff Bridges performances, including Tucker. Yes, even Kiss Me Goodbye and Jagged Edge with Glenn Close. Those are movies that otherwise aren't going to come up on our list, I'm pretty sure. And I don't think we're going to give any space to Iron Man either, even though based on listener feedback, Josh, we probably should have. One of the most common responses from listeners, at least on Twitter, yeah. was people saying Obadiah Stone and that line. I guess it does speak to the ubiquity of the MCU, but that is a great moment, even if I'm a little sour on that closing third that Henrik mentioned. There's there's something fun about seeing Bridges, someone like Bridges, not only in a property like that, yeah. but really chewing his moment. So I get it. I can see why people thought of it. But yeah, wasn't in contention for my list. Okay, no Iron Man on our list. Otherwise, what did make your top five Bridges scenes? Well, I want to go back a little bit to what I was talking about in our Starman review, the sense of ease that I feel like defines Bridges. And he has... Um, you know, the presence he has. And you amended that a little bit, which I wanted to follow. I, I think you were correct in that what's interesting about Bridges and his best characters start there. And then that ease is disrupted. OK, and, and th- this is the crucial story that the character is going to find themselves in. It's either disrupted or it's shown to be falsely held or undeserved. And then the character's journey starts there. So we follow him from this point of just being completely comfortable in his skin. Um, And sometimes these are characters we like and sometimes they're characters we loathe. And then seeing where he goes from there. Um, So not all of my picks have to do with that, but it was a through line through many of them. At number five, I am going with a scene from Fearless, and this is Crashing the Car. So Fearless from the great Peter Weir, the Australian director who also made Dead Poets Society and The Truman Show. This is based on a novel by Rafael Iglesias. Bridges stars as Max Klein, an architect who's on a commercial flight that goes down. And during the crash, uh, Klein has, Max has this sort of, it's like a Zen calm that comes over him. He starts comforting other passengers. Um, Then he comes away from this accident unscathed, even though most of the other passengers are killed or severely injured. And in light of that, he sort of believes that he's this invincible guardian angel. Mm-hmm. He wanders about tempting fate, walking into traffic, tiptoeing at the edge of, of rooftops. And he meets up with a few other fellow survivors and they debate their place in the universe and the existence of God. Now, one of those fellow survivors is Carla, played by Rosie Perez, and she's absolutely bereft because she was holding her infant son at the time of the crash, and the impact caused her to lose 
her grip on him. So my bridges seen from fearless involves the two of them. It's also one that listener Faith highlighted on Twitter as well. She's at Glam Bam Watches. At one point, Carla and Max are in a car together. She's hyperventilating, just overcome again with with grief and guilt, having a breakdown. And Max has this maniacally inspired idea to demonstrate to her there's no way she could have maintained her grip in that situation. His experiment, have her hold this toolbox in her lap while he drives about 40 miles per hour directly into a concrete wall. Pray to God to give you the strength to save your baby. Hold on to your baby. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. I love this scene because I don't really know how to feel about it or how to feel about Bridges in it. He, again, has that Zen clarity in this this moment where he's just like, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. Um, he's, he's maniacal so sure of, about it. He is. Almost. And just so sure of himself. Um, but there, there is that hint of mania that's disturbing, too. Mm-hmm. And I like the skepticism to the call to prayer you hear in that scene. It plays off of Carla's Catholicism and this general spiritual undercurrent that's going throughout the entire film. I think Bridges is one of the few actors who can hit all those conflicting notes. And this is what you were getting at when we were talking about Starman. Mm-hmm. Still have you on his side. Yeah. Right? So, um, and, you know, the that beat perfect use of U2's uh, Where the Streets Have No Name doesn't hurt. So. You know what? That's the one element of that scene that I couldn't get past. You don't like it? Well, you I don't love, think it belongs? Yeah, or? I love that song. And I just have to admit that watching it this weekend, it took me completely out of the scene thinking hmm. about how it felt like it was something that I would hear in a completely different film, certainly in a completely different moment, not one as intense and borderline traumatic as that scene is. Yeah, I think it's the the thing with that song, whenever you pick a song so well-known, you're bringing in a lot of context and other associations, but for me, it's the propulsiveness of it. Mm -hmm. And the, the guitar revving up as the car engine does, and I was wondering how they were going to end the music because the the point in the song is like you're way away from the ending mm-hmm. when they hit the wall but it does kind of use a drum crash to work perfectly so yeah i th- i thought it was a good element to it all right well i'm going to break all the rules here i'm going to be like jeff bridges i'm a rule breaker and i am going to go to my number 4 because it's just too good of a follow up to your okay. number 5 and it's also from fearless it's from one of the few scenes that come after this big crash scene that you just described. And if I'm being totally honest, it's not a moment or a scene that is going to end up on his lifetime achievement reel that we will certainly all watch someday. It's just not maybe that big enough. It's not enough of a standout moment from his entire career. But for me, it's the most powerful moment in Fearless. And it's really all because of a single line reading by Bridges. And it's actually a single word. He's now in the hospital. And if you haven't seen Fearless and don't want any spoilers at all, then you probably shouldn't listen to this. But this is basically the end of the film, the penultimate scene, actually, where now he's in the hospital recovering from his injuries that were suffered in the accident you talked about. And Carla comes to visit him. And basically, Carla is there to say we need to... Stop having this relationship. Whatever this relationship is, it's going to be better for him and maybe for her if they 
go their separate ways. And she tells him that you can't save everybody. You got to try taking care of yourself. Say goodbye, Max. And of course, he says goodbye. Why do we have to say goodbye? She says it has to be that way. He says, I don't want to say goodbye. And her line is just just say it like it means nothing. And this whole movie, and you just talked about one of the key scenes, has been about the force and the power of simulated acts. Dying in a plane crash, coming to terms with your death, and then you didn't actually die. You survived. Reenacting a crash scene while holding your baby, except it's not your baby you're holding. The idea that genuine catharsis can come from, for lack of a better word, these artificial moments. And Max has always been the one who got that. And now he's the one who has to understand it. Carla's kind of flipping the tables a little bit. And he knows that she's saying goodbye forever. He clearly doesn't want that. And I kind of assumed in that moment that we were going to get from him what she wants, a goodbye to appease her, but ultimately a woeful one. And instead, he performs perfectly. He gives her a goodbye that's like, goodbye, Carla. It's it's really just like that, only much better because it's Jeff Bridges. It's a goodbye like you're hanging up the phone on a friend who you know you're going to see in an hour or two. And something about him being willing to play that game and to go through that moment, even though it was fake, I thought was quite profound. Rather than denying her because it went against his feelings, he did truly say it as if it meant nothing. And this idea that you can maybe trick your brain into closure is powerful and it was certainly a powerful moment for me between these two characters yeah that that entire relationship with those two is just fascinating the the different dynamics and it's unlike almost any other movie relationship you've seen between man and woman it just has a lot of permutations to it and it's one of the strengths of the film for sure all right my number four comes from the fisher king and I'll just call it reacting to horrible news and I'm going to let listener Marius vibe uh, on Twitter he's at zanman 75. Set it up here. He says, I remember the first time Bridges really got to me. It's in The Fisher King, the scene when he realizes that what he said ended in a terrible tragedy and that his life will never be the same again. Great performance from a great actor in a great movie. I agree with Marius on all three counts. I love The Fisher King. It's one of Terry Gilliam's more reality-based pictures, I think. And Bridges plays a shock jock here, Jack Lucas, whose inflammatory comments are cited as inspiration by a mass shooter who has opened fire on people in a restaurant before killing himself. Lucas learns of this while the news is on television news, but it's how he learns it that is so revealing of his character. Um, So Lucas is, here's a Bridges type that's completely comfortable with himself, right? He's so sure of his place in the world as this shock jock, and uh, he's proud of himself, who he's become. So he enters the room of his apartment. He comes into the room because he hears the sound of his own voice on the television. So it's like a siren moment, only he's lulling himself into the room. Um, And we see Lucas's face as he's watching his own face on the television screen. And there's this sense of triumph on it. You know, yes, I, I should be talked about. It's a free press element, but also like this is how important I am. Then the newscast switches to report on the massacre and it begins to dawn on Lucas what's happening. Bridges reacts without a word here. It's all in the face. And I can't imagine the degree of difficulty going on in a scene like this. I mean, your expressions are going to have to carry all that responsibility, 
under that sort of scrutiny, but you also know you can't overdo it when you're being watched that closely. And sure enough, Gilliam, the camera slowly zooms in even closer, even closer. And Bridges, he lets the self-satisfied smile freeze for a few seconds. Then it drops. His mouth opens a tiny bit. But you can see the eyes just go dead, like completely dead mm-hmm. from the, the glint that they had before. And then he indulges in a risky gesture. His eyebrows raise just as his hand covers his mouth, um, even while Gilliam keeps moving in for that a really extreme close-up. And then we notice under the skin, the skin under his left eye, rapidly pulsating, his blood pounding away through a tiny vessel, which is saying more than, you know, any word could. So I think Bridges has a lot of good scenes with Robin Williams in mm-hmm. The Fisher King. Their dynamic is fascinating. Um, but I'm with Marius on this one that here alone without words is probably his best. I love The Fisher King. I'm going to go back, though, to my number five. We'll get back on track here. And it's one of those films that to people of a generation just before us would have been an introductory one to Jeff Bridges. I know it's not the last picture show, though that was his breakout, but it's actually the movie he did after it or soon after it, a couple of years, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And I just want to say about the last picture show, I really wanted to fit in a scene from that movie because I'm a fan of that Peter Bogdanovich movie. I'm a fan of that performance. It was his breakout role. It was his first Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Co-star Ben Johnson would ultimately win. But as I rewatched a lot of the great scenes from it, it's been a while since I've seen the film. As I watched a lot of scenes from it on YouTube today, it's amazing how good Timothy Bottoms, who's really the main character in that film, really is. And a lot of the best scenes are ones that Bogdanovich kind of gives him key focus and i felt like bridges maybe doesn't stand out quite as much at least for our purposes as i wanted him to but he obviously stood out to audiences and critics at the time and both movies are of a pair as we talk about bridges because i'm talking about thunderbolt and lightfoot which is a movie that produced bridges second oscar nomination also for best supporting actor it's a movie that also taps into a certain rowdy charm that bridges has yet there is a fragility to him an uneasiness that comes from being kind of trapped and a little bit hopeless and they're also movies that are concerned with the end of an era in a certain place and time it's texas in the last picture show in thunderbolt and lightfoot the michael chimino film it's big sky country in montana and boy is it a film that feels like the mid-70s. You've got Paul Williams doing kind of a Cat Stevens thing on the soundtrack, and you've got these disillusioned anti-heroes pulling off a heist, Clint Eastwood, a great 70s face like George Kennedy and Jeffrey Lewis. And this is Chimino's debut in 74. And it is this buddy heist picture, but like another film that is going to come up in this top five, as soon as you set it against the grandeur of this West landscape, in those mountains, it takes on some kind of greater meaning. And Chimino definitely wants to tap into that profundity and this idea that something has been lost about men, about America, whatever it might be. And Bridges' final scene with Eastwood is probably the one that's most memorable from this film. But I think our introduction to his character, Lightfoot, is my favorite. And it really is such a great use of Bridges' strengths. The streak that you talked about, which is that ability to make you feel as if he is so confident and so comfortable with who he is. And it's him walking onto a used car lot and he picks out a fast car. The dealer is all too happy to get him in the car and get him to turn the ignition. So he might actually buy it. And 
there is that little bit of enigmatic quality to him where he's using deadpan humor. He's not looking right at the guy. So you are drawn to him even more. And yet there's something that makes him immediately likable, which is a Bridges characteristic. And you trust him, even though he has no reason to trust him. I think actually as he drives off, he calls him a damn hippie or something, which comes from the fact that, you know, he's got kind of longer hair. He's wearing a necklace. He's definitely not a good old boy like this guy. And yet something about his character made the dealer feel like he was someone he could trust to turn that car on and he could try to sell him. And the way Bridges plays with him when he says, are you sure you're man enough to handle a car like this? I don't know. I have a wooden leg. Kid. When the guy asks again if he's really serious, Bridges just does this great physical bit where he puts his head back, kind of lingers for a second, and smiles broadly, and he says, You never can tell. And he punches the gas and speeds off a lot. And really, like any great introductory scene, that's not the first scene of the movie, but the first scene with Bridges, we truly know everything we need to know about Lightfoot in terms of his kind of devil-may-care attitude, that goofiness and cockiness, and his ability to win people over and fool them is something that is going to be crucial to his character. I think that as I look at my list, it's the only one that really fits into that scheme you talked about of a guy who, even though there is, as I said, kind of that fragility, a sense of being lost. And Bridges brings that to the character. He's also, for lack of a better word, such a goofball and someone mm-hmm. who just seems like he's out there to have a good time and really doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Bridges really nails that. Well, and that little moment you talk about where he pauses yeah. before answering, I, I think it's he's as an actor, he's not afraid of the pause right. and uses it to kind of either destabilize people or mm-hmm. or shift or or again just express like I'm comfortable if we just sit here for an extra yeah. second. Yeah. <laughs> I can handle it, yeah. can you? Exactly. All right, my number 3, if you're a fan of the Coens True Grit, um, you'll know exactly what scene I'm talking about with with these words, I bow out. This comes a little more than halfway into the Coen Brothers remake of the 69 John Wayne Western. And it's where the marshal played by Bridges, Rooster Cogburn, has come up against a dead end. Um, he's, if you haven't seen the film, he's been hired by a girl who's played by Haley Steinfeld to pursue the outlaw who killed her father. But at this point, they've lost his trail. So he's at a campfire with Maddie, the girl, and also with the Texas Ranger played by Matt Damon, who he doesn't care for at all. Cogburn is drunk. He's desolate. And he's taking it out on the two of them. Um, I'm a foolish old man who's been drawn into a wild goose chase by a harpy in trousers and a nincompoop. Uh, Mr. LeBeef, he can wander the Choctaw Nation for as long as he likes. Perhaps the local engines will take him in and honor his gibberings by making him chief. You, sister, might go where you like. Our engagement is terminated. Bye. So I have a talk that I give on True Grit that's drawn from my book. It's basically a workshop of a number of scenes from the movie to look at it as a prayer of confession. And I think this is the key confessional moment for Rooster Cogburn. Bridges burrows into the selfishness and the smugness here of the character. He's he's plopped down by the fire and puffed up in all these overcoats, barking like a bullfrog. He, he's, again, completely at ease, even though he doesn't deserve it at all. Um, 
But there's this downward spiral to his sputtering that brings him. You, you first notice it when he gives that little admission, I'm a foolish old man. That's something he never would have said earlier in the film. And then you get that quiet confession at the end, I bow out. Um, what's interesting is when he first says that same phrase at the beginning of the scene, I bow out, it's bold, it's authoritative, and it, it's clear. It's like he's telling the two of them that this is what's going to happen. Um, but at the end, it has this air of a reluctant apology to it. And the Coens, of course, emphasize this with the filmmaking. At the very beginning of the scene, they show him a full body shot. He's gesturing from a point of authority and power. And then the, the camera moves closer as he plops down, gets quieter, and becomes a little more intimate for this uh, this confession of of weakness in a sense. So Bridges, though, he's the really he's the one who makes the scene work, revealing just these cracks in Cogburn's bravado without really saying it. It's more how he's saying the same thing, just completely differently. I love the Coen Brothers, and I love Jeff Bridges. I really, really need to rewatch True Grit, a film I liked, but kind of have outside my top ten. I know you have it way high on your Coen's list, yeah, it's and a big one for me. In fairness. They've made some great films, and it's very easy to have a lot of really good films down lower on your list. My number three is from The Fisher King, and it's almost going to seem like we coordinated these picks, Josh, even though we didn't, because I also chose a scene that relies completely on Bridges as a watcher, silent, and it's all about what he's doing with his eyes in the mm. scene. And it's really one of the key emotional moments of the film, this relationship he has with Perry, Robin Williams' troubled knight who is seeking the Holy Grail. And without getting too much into the plot details after he's had an accident and is now in a catatonic state, Jack goes to visit him at this point but brings with him the Grail, the Grail that he thinks is this magic cup. And he talks to him briefly then wraps his hands around the grail, and Jack lays his head down on his hospital bed and goes to sleep. When Perry wakes up, and he does finally come to, he has a confession for Jack, and it's really Perry at this point speaking in a way, in a lucid way that we maybe haven't heard the whole film. He says to Jack, I was dreaming that I was married to a beautiful woman. You were in it too. And when he says, I really miss her, Jack, is that okay? can I miss her now is just devastating. And it's devastating not only because of William's work, but because of where Gilliam puts the camera and what Jeff Bridges is doing in that scene. And for how big of a personality Bridges can be, we've talked about some of these performances, maybe animated in his expressions and movements. I really think of him at his best as a listener. I think he's one of our best listeners as an actor. And Gilliam puts the camera at his eye level with his head down at the bed. And Perry can't see from his vantage point that Jack is actually awake and is hearing what he's saying. And watching Bridges' face when he asks for permission to miss her, that's the moment. Because up to here, that's the moment because he's been totally still throughout this there is a little bit of waterworks. He is reacting emotionally to the scene. But then that question comes, can I miss her now? And you see Bridges' whole essence just wilt. And it's in a subtle breath 
that you can barely hear. It's in these eyebrows that have been furrowed and you see the lines in the middle of his forehead. And then just at that question, the eyebrows go up just slightly and you see that tension loosen. If you watch the scene kind of removed from the context of the film and their relationship and this act of valor and sacrifice that it is by Jack and this revelation from Perry, I don't know that it hits too hard. But in the context and just watching that really subtle shift mm-hmm. on Bridge's face, that's that's all the emotional kick we need. Yeah. Yeah. That, as we both have talked about it, you know, the Fisher King maybe strikes me as one of his more subtle performances and, you know, all the better for it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so at my number two is a movie that I watched for the first time for this list. And it's the fabulous Baker Boys, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, I'll just pull a line from this scene um, to help identify it to those who have seen it. We're still here. I'll give you a little context. But first off, can we agree? I think at least the films, the Bridges films I've seen, this is his best hair. I mean, that's saying oh. something. He's, oh, without he's a got doubt. great hair, but I think in Fabulous Baker Boys, it's at yes, fabulous, fabulous Baker Boys is Bridges probably at his sexiest. Yeah, yeah. I think I that's mean, fair. What would, what would another option be? What would be in contention? I'd love to hear it. I'm kind of throwing that out to our listeners. Yeah. It'd be hard to beat him as Jack Baker in the Fabulous Baker Boys. All right, good. Glad we're on the same page there. So Bridges, let's just say he could play some real a-holes, right? He wasn't afraid of that at all. Um, And I think one of his biggest is Jack Baker, one half of the piano duo, the Fabulous Baker Boys. They're mainstays of the Seattle hotel bar dinner club scene. So they're professionals, but just barely. Uh, Bo Bridges plays Jack's older, more responsible brother, interestingly enough. And now to reinvigorate their act early in the film, they bring in Michelle Pfeiffer's singer, Susie Diamond, and she disrupts the equilibrium in various ways. Pfeiffer deservedly nominated for an Oscar. She's sort of like a nightclub singer that the Catwoman dragged in. She's just (laughs) great in this movie. Jack and Susie eventually have this brief fling. Then things turn icy. And Jack reveals his worst side in a scene late in the film where she tells him she's quitting. What do you want from me? You want me to tell you to stay? Is that what you're looking for? You want me to get down on my knees, beg you to save the Baker boys from doom? Forget it, sweetheart. We survived for 15 years before you started on this scene. 15 years, two seconds, you're bawling like a baby. You shouldn't be wearing a dress, you should be wearing a diaper. Jesus, you an egghead our brothers, aren't you? Let me tell you something. Over the years, they've dropped like flies in every hotel in the city. We're still here. We've never held a day job in our lives. Bridges is just so cruel here. Mm -hmm. It's the bitter end of that smug, self-satisfied sensibility that he can have. Uh, And I, I love, hate love, I should say, that... The cigarette dangles from mm. his mouth for not this entire scene, but for most of his dialogue. Yeah. He doesn't. It's just That's like, how unmoved he is by it. it all. Exactly. Yeah. He can't even can bother to adjust the cigarette. And there's something about him wearing. He wears a lot of trench coats mm. in his movies. I'd like to know what's behind that. But at least here it has it gives him a sense of formality, but also a looseness and a casualness. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I could be dressed up, but I don't really care. Anyway, that's all at play here. And part of his cruelty somehow. Yet, there's also a noble dignity mm-hmm. to some of what he is saying here. And that's why I cite that line, we're still here. Yeah. And how he talks about, we've never had to work a day job in our lives. I am fascinated when you go to a place like a hotel bar and there's 
you know, professional musicians working there is like, what's that life like? Um, I've always wondered that. And I like the peak you get into it mm-hmm. and how um, maybe some people, that's exactly what they want to be doing. Maybe others have what Jack is feeling, this this distress over other aspirations. Um, you know, his his brother is happy to be there. So it's really interesting to see how Jack here recognizes the nobility of them sticking around, staying at it. Which he won't otherwise admit to his brother. Exactly. But he admits it to her. Exactly. And and yet, you know, it's not for him. So all of that is going on. Um, just a really strong scene, even though it's probably, you know, one of the more despicable in some cases mm-hmm. uh, Bridges characters. I You know, I really liked Fabulous Baker Boys, written and directed by Steve Cloves, who gave it, you know, not only great characters, but a real strong sense of place in Seattle, I think. Cloves went on to write the adaptation of Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas mm-hmm. and Tobey Maguire. And then I'd forgotten this, all of the Harry Potter screenplays. Right. So a really interesting career turn. Uh, looks like he's going to be back soon as a writer and director with an adaptation of the very good book, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. So with the Fabulous Baker Boys, though, I think he gave maybe career best parts to the Bridges brothers and Pfeiffer, yeah. um, and they, all of them made the most of it. Yeah, it was a movie I needed to see as well before doing this list. And although it didn't make my top five, that very scene you're talking about was my honorable mention pick. And there are many others that you could go with, including his other big split scene where he really kind of crushes Michelle Pfeiffer. It's an argument, I think, in a street that happens. He has a great showdown with his brother, Bo Bridges, also in yeah. a street or in an alleyway. There's a wonderful scene between them where they kind of then make amends for that. The make and whoopee scene where they're now performing this very seductive song yeah. without Bo Bridges there, without I, older brother. I almost went with that one because of, it goes back to your listening comment, how Jeff Bridges... yes. Let's Pfeiffer have the scene and responds exactly as he should. But in, in the end, it's her scene. So it is. We'll her save scene. that for our Pfeiffer list. Yeah. Well, that's another key characteristic, I think, of Bridges. Whether you talk about him playing off Karen Allen or any of the other people opposite him, like Rosie Perez, right. Robin Williams, he does not need to suck all the oxygen out of the room no. in a scene. He will absolutely listen and play off his co stars. And you talk about just going back to that scene for one more second, the reason why it stood out to me as the key scene, the key bridges scene from that movie is that the noble dignity is also not him protecting himself, but it's protecting her. The more of a jerk he is to her in that moment, the easier it is for her to walk away. And I think that is a calculation he's also making. Mm -hmm. He's saying, you know what? You don't need to be any part of this. You don't need me dragging you down. You should go. And I think that is playing into how he treats her in that moment. My number two is from Hell or High Water. And this is a character in Texas Ranger Marcus Hamilton where we get a little bit of a-hole, as you put it. We get a little bit of Rooster Cogburn, for sure. sure. (laughs) In this guy, this is the movie from 2016, written by Taylor Sheridan, directed by David McKenzie. And a few candidates here, people on Facebook pointed out the end conversation with Chris Pine, which I really do like. But the real high-wire act in the film that still perform with such grace is the sniper scene. I'm calling it the I got you scene. Ben Foster is one of these two brothers with Pine who have robbed a lot of banks and the motives of the Pine character may be fairly sound, as sound as they can be or as righteous as they can be for robbing banks. But Ben Foster is a little bit of a thrill seeker and a little bit of a menace, frankly, and 
bridges and the authorities have now tracked them down and they're in the mountains trying to get away. And Foster, his character has basically sacrificed himself so his brother can escape. And he's opening fire on the cops. And early in the scene, Bridges is crouched down with his partner, Alberto, who's played by Gil Birmingham, a really good performance in the film from him. And they have this interesting dynamic where there's clearly some love and respect between them. But you've got the Bridges character constantly teasing him about his Comanche heritage. And as you're in this landscape, these mythic roles all kind of start to factor in and these ghosts of real characters and fictional characters all kind of start to play into the equation. You've got the confidence of the sheriff. He's a little bit cocky here in the moment. So cocky, in fact, that Marcus is making a joke to his partner. He says, why don't you slip up this canyon and tomahawk this son of a bitch? at the exact moment where Alberto is shot in the head and killed. And that prompts Marcus to find a local guy who can drive him up to an area where he can try to get a shot. He's really out for blood now because he's so angry at Foster's Tanner. And he's told it's going to be an impossible shot. It's going to be 500 yards away. He says, I don't care. Let's go do it. And as they get up there, the character says to him, you're winded and it's not even your gun. Let me take the shot. And he says, not on your life. He's mine. With that jaw jutted out and that grizzled grumble of his that we get from Bridges in this film. And right before he takes the shot, we get that deep breath, the intense focus. But there's even a sense of pain in that pause where it's almost like he wishes none of this was happening. He's so angry, though, and he's so eager to shoot, but you get the sense that he could break down any second, as if the whole weight of all of this senselessness is there on Bridge's face. And when it cuts to Foster, this is where that mythic sense comes in again. He's looking at everyone down below him as he thinks he's safe up here in the hills, and he says, Lord of the Plains, that's me. And that's exactly the moment where he gets shot. And I'll let our listeners take over. A couple listeners on our Facebook page talked about this moment, the beats that happen after he fires the kill shot. Zach Santucci says his reaction to the end of the shootout at the climax of Hell or High Water is playing like three emotions at once. Relief, joy, and sorrow all through a haze of mental and physical exhaustion. And it's a fantastic moment. Curridan Shea Powell goes even further with those combinations of emotions. He says when he kills Ben Foster's character after his partner is killed, his reaction is an incredible mix of victory, sadness, justice, relief, exhaustion, frustration, regret. All at once. It's incredible. It really is incredible. It's all those things. And there's even a little bit of humor. The guy who's next to him who said he probably couldn't do it, he turns to him and gives him a look like you doubted me. And then he slaps him a couple of times playfully, letting out a chuckle. And it's that chuckle that then just immediately kind of shifts into this really plaintive cry. And just within a few beats, as I said, he hits every one of those notes that our listeners describe. It's really a bravura Jeff Bridges moment. Yeah, it was an honorable mention for me. You mentioned the, um, you know, how he just kind of wheezes. And I love how he hauls around his heft in this movie. It definitely makes it part of the character. The other scene I thought about for from hell or high water is that hotel room theological debate. It's prompted by this television evangelist that he has with his partner, Gil mm-hmm. Birmingham, who you mentioned, their dynamic is another another, you know, example of him playing off and listening to a co-star. For sure. Key to that film. So does this mean as we get to our number ones, we're gonna end as we should with the dude? 
Are we, we're having the dude? You think the dude deserves? I mean, some credit. As listeners know, the dude is in the pantheon. This Technically, should not be eligible for this list. There, he's another rule breaker, though. This is not nom. There are rules, <laughs> and one of the rules we break on the show is when we're doing a retrospective on a career. Mm-hmm. We do let those pantheon choices factor in, and really, how can you not? Talk about the Big Lebowski when you talk about Jeff Bridges. So the dude is interesting because he's Bridges' most popular and beloved character. But in my paradigm, at least, this man of ease who must be diseased, he's probably the one who grows or changes the least in response to having that sense of self shaken up. So there's no cathartic character arc that some of his other ones do, where they come to to learn something more about themselves and find a place of real comfort. The dude is just the dude. Now, just about every moment in this movie with Bridges is a gem. But I had to pick the one that I think gets at the heart of the dude's persona. And it's a speech he gives, and maybe not a speech, but something he says to the movie's other Lebowski. So this is the wealthy husband of the missing woman. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Well, I do work, sir. I love how when he asks, what day is this? He turns around for, like, legit help. Like, he really needs help from the big Lebowski's assistant, who played, of course, by Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's also the way he sits in the chair here, slouched, his legs casually crossed. He's completely out of place in this mansion, right? Wearing his undershirt and his hoodie. But he sits there as if he's in his lounger at home. And the Coen brothers delivered the dialogue, of course. But the way Bridges just lets the dude's logic roll out yeah. so laconically, it's it's as if him being the dude makes so much sense in the scheme of the universe that he yes. doesn't even have to really be awake to argue in its favor. It's like I, I could just explain this in my sleep because it's it's so logical. So the dude may be more at ease with himself than any other Bridges character. The fact that he isn't moved to question that or change that identity, does that mean the movie thinks he doesn't He doesn't really have to? I'm going to say yes. The dude the abides. Dude, the dude abides. I mean, that's the answer, right? Right. I love the dude. Yeah. It's a fantastic choice. I don't think that we are going to surprise anyone with our picks from The Big Lebowski. It's either that scene, I think, or another famous explanation scene. <laughs> Between him and Philip Seymour Hoffman, the assistant, and the real Big Lebowski played by David Huddleston. And it's when he gets thrown into the limo and has to account for the fact that the money, it seems, was never delivered. Man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light. And, you know, has it ever occurred to you that instead of... uh, you know, running around uh, uh, blaming me, you know, given the nature of all this new sh- you know, it, it, this could be a, a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. New sh- has come to light. And, and sh- 
Man, she kidnapped herself. This is truly one of those like your scene where what explanation do you need besides just playing it? But I'll say that what I love is the way somehow Bridges, maybe the greatest feat of acting, the greatest physical part of the scene is that he gets thrown into the limousine pretty abruptly, doesn't spill the white Russian. No. He keeps it totally upright. I don't think a drop spills anywhere. Priorities. That's it. And you're right. That kind of stream of consciousness, the logic of it, he knows that he's making some things up. He knows that there are some elements here that he is BSing, but it truly is if he believes at its core that what he's saying is fundamentally true. Yes. And they just need to listen to him and understand <laughs> it. She kidnapped herself, man. And I do love that stream of consciousness element to it that the Coen brothers in their editing really play up perfectly. It's not one long take, but they get a few different kind of long bridges shots in it where the camera just stays on him. It will occasionally cut back to Hoffman and Huddleston, but otherwise you feel like he's just putting himself out there and kind of hanging himself out to dry because That's all they can do is talk, and they're giving him no response or really no relief that they're buying any of it. And you're just watching Bridges at his best in terms of the rhythm. I talked about the rhythm of the editing that I think is so perfect, but it really is Bridges as well. And that's especially true when you think about the fact that it was supposedly all on the page. A lot of people think, Bridges has talked about this, that a lot of people assume because of the style of the delivery, especially in this scene, but throughout the whole film, that there must have been a lot of improv and they just gave him free reign to kind of go off. But no, of course, it's the Cone Brothers. And according to Bridges, every man, every uh, sure, it was all there. It was all on the page. And he would go back and reference them and count them and make sure he was delivering it all. And the fact that he did that, the fact that you can deliver something that seems that genuinely improvised seems that off the cuff but actually is delivering everything that's on the page perfectly is really a technical marvel in and of itself well that's where the physicality comes in right where he matches his gestures and his posture yes to what's on the page i think it's also the musicality i think if you watch a movie like the fabulous baker boys and you watch Crazy Heart, obviously, where he's actually playing the guitar and performing those songs. He's actually playing the piano in The Fabulous Baker Boys. He is known as someone who's a musician. And this scene really has that kind of flow, the ability to just tap in completely to the dude's rhythm. And it's his own unique rhythm. And that's what makes The Big Lebowski such a unique pleasure. So those are our top five Jeff Bridges scenes. We would love to hear your picks or any other thoughts about the show, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions that we haven't touched on? Well, I did just want to throw in the last picture show. I know you brought it up, but I do like that quite a bit as well. And heard from a listener, Brett Gurlt, at Beardy Brett on Twitter, who said, the last picture show has to get some love. He has so many good scenes. He plays Dwayne so cocksure and naive. And I think, yeah, there's that combo there of, you know, an unearned confidence maybe in that character. So I definitely considered... The Last Picture Show. And also, here's a film that hasn't come up yet. The Door on the Floor. Jeffrey Webb on Facebook said, pointed out his monologue about the car wreck in that movie. That's a 2004 domestic drama. He and Kim Basinger, both very good in that movie. So I just wanted to throw out that one as well. Yeah, going back to The Last Picture Show, Unauthorized Cinnamon is the name on Twitter, pointed out the motel scene. And it's one I thought about. This is the scene with Sybil Shepard where she is supposed to be losing her virginity to Jeff Bridges, Dwayne. And that is the one moment where we see that 
whole confident outer yeah. persona completely melt and yeah. basically he Come fails. Undone. Yeah, he fails there in that scene. And it's another one that's really all on Bridges' face and happening in his eyes. The only other one that hasn't come up otherwise for me, and there are obviously lots of others, I think about The Contender. There are a few Mm -hmm. different scenes with him as the president there with Joan Allen. His scene with Shelley Runyon, Gary Oldman, where they're on a boat, is a pretty good scene where he's setting him up for a fall. There's a scene on the lawn between him and Allen, and, of course, he's got a big speech. If only we lived in a world where politicians could make impassioned speeches of conviction and they made any difference, Josh. Hmm. I'd like to hmm. I'd like to believe that these days. Bridges almost makes me believe that it's still the truth. And I'll throw it in again, even though it did come up in our Starman discussion earlier in the show, Dutch Apple Pie. It's terrific. <laughs> That's the one. If I'm actually putting together my reel of Jeff Bridges in his all time great moments, it either starts or ends with that. After the fork fumbling, though. After. Start, started I'll after. Leave out the fork, the fork fumbling. fumbling. Again, those are our top five Jeff Bridges scenes. Send us yours. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That is the show. It is. If you want to head over to the show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And for a Film Spotting t-shirt or other merch, go over to filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. As you heard, we got a lot of great suggestions from listeners in both places for our Bridges list. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, Birds of Prey, the latest DCEU entry with Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. In limited release, The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green, who made cast John Benet, A Day in the Life of a Powerful Corporate Executive, and The Lodge from directors of the 2014 horror film Good Night, Mommy. It stars Riley Keough and a couple of kids stuck in a remote mountain cabin. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll your favorite performance duo of the 2010s. Next week on the show, for now, we're planning on sharing our top 10 performances of the decade. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.